This is VLX number 83, Mysteries of the Kingdom. We are in Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. God give you his peace. In nomine Patris, Ephidii, Spiritus Sancti, Amen. God our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine Patris, Ephidii, Spiritus Sancti, Amen. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. So thanks to everybody who subscribes and listens to this every week. Just a reminder, if you invite a friend to the VLX series, they can catch up in four months and then just have one a week. We're going to talk a little bit later about other meditations you can fit in during the week. Also, a big thanks to all my donors that uh, keep my life going of uh, prayer and teaching and some evangelization and some pro-life work. Now, the first thing I want to look at today is, if you noticed, I called it Mysteries of the Kingdom, but the ESV today said Secrets of the Kingdom. Well, why did I do that? Listen to Greek. Listen to the Greek in verse 11 today. Verse 11 of Matthew 13 says, Mysteria teis basileas. Mysteria is mysteries. Teis is of thee. And basileas is kingdom. So, Mysteria of the Kingdom, or Mysteries of the Kingdom, the Dewey Rhymes Bible gets it right today, calling it the Mysteries of the Kingdom. Now, today is a passage that honestly troubled me for a long time because it, it appears to promote double predestination, that invention of John Calvin, the heretic of the 16th century. We have to talk about the errors of misinterpreting Isaiah 6 and Matthew 13. So stick with me for a little while, even if you think Calvinism is boring. It's actually probably the most fascinating of all Christian heresies. So stick with me here. You know, John Calvin died in 1564. And Father Lapide, the Jesuit who we quote all the time, he wrote this about 40 years after the death of Calvin. So he seems to know a little bit about the errors of Calvin as he uses the church fathers today to disprove Double predestination. Double predestination basically means that some people God made to go to heaven and then God made other people to go to hell. Not just that they go to hell. We Catholics believe people go to hell by rejecting God's grace. Calvinists actually believe God made them at their conception to go to hell. And yes, they really do deny free will. Um, traditional Calvinism is known as five point, And people often remember the five points of Calvinism according to a mnemonic called T-U-L-I-P, tulip. We're not going to talk about all of those. Uh, I'll just give you them real quick. T is total depravity. U is unconditional election. L is limited atonement. I is irresistible grace. And P is perseverance of the saints. But I do want to talk about unconditional election and limited atonement. That's the U-L of tulip today. Because again, Isaiah chapter 6 is very easily interpreted according to these two errors. 
And this is why we're going to see what the Holy Fathers, what all Christians, the first thousand years of Christianity believed about this. But we're going to see why someone like John Calvin could kind of fall into this double predestination, especially based on lines like today from Matthew 13 and Isaiah 6. So you're going to hear me use the word double predestination several times today, but you have to understand what what the definition of, of that is. So the U of TULIP is unconditional election. Unconditional election is basically this, that some people are wound up by God for heaven and some people are wound up for hell. Again, double predestination is the term I'm going to use, that God has made, not just allowed, made certain people for hell. Okay, L of TULIP is limited atonement, and that's basically that Jesus Christ only died for the people that end up saved. Real quick, we know this is false because the beginning of 1 John 2 reads this exactly. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the just. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Listen again to that last verse. Christ is the, quote, propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Uh, that's First John 2, 2, and that right there disproves limited atonement. Now, it seems that there's less and less Christians today that seem to hold to five-point tulip Calvinism precisely because nobody really likes the idea of no free will. But there are a few people left. Uh, Allie Beth Stuckey, she's a pro-life speaker, uh, relatively young. She believes in five-point tulip Calvinism. In fact, she has a video on her channel that I'm showing a quick picture of. But, you know, for years, I can kind of see how people fall into this error because for years, before you read the, the early fathers and the apostles, it's very easy to read Isaiah 6 today and kind of come to this conclusion there's no free will. Listen to this. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, you could make the argument again that that almost makes it sound like God doesn't want certain people to be saved so that they don't see with their eyes, Jesus and Isaiah say, and hear with their ears and understand with their heart. Again, you could maybe make a pretty good argument from that right there that free will doesn't exist. And for that UL of Tulip and Calvinism, again, there's this unconditional election that God purposefully, follow me here, purposefully set up some people for heaven and others for hell and that there is no such thing as free will. Well, the fact is, this is a brand new idea in the 16th century. You will not find a single Christian in the first thousand years of Christianity who believed in the five points of tulip Calvinism. And this is why it's so important to see what the apostles and the fathers taught uh, about this and what we're going to look at today. If you remember the last VLX I did, sorry, that was two weeks ago, but it was called VLX 82, and it was on the parable of the sower. Remember, we talked about how the enemy of the gospel tries to keep that seed from taking root in your heart. And the enemy is the rocks and the thorns and the birds. But if you remember this, we proved that the soil of your life was free will. The soil is not just the family you grew up in, as I kind of thought for a while, which again would lend itself to double predestination, this idea that we're really just wound up for heaven and hell based on genetics and 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 even worse than genetics, just kind of like uh, arbitrary, capricious deity's will. Um, but what we see from Jesus and the apostles and the fathers is that you get to pick if the soil in your life avoids the lust of the flesh and if the soil in your life avoids the lust of the eyes 
and the pride of life, as St. John calls those. In fact, Father Lapidy shows that Jesus lines up the dangers on the way to salvation to those exact three things of St. John. I don't think I was clear on this last time. The rocks are the lust of the flesh, the thorns are the lust of the eyes, and the birds, that would be the same as the devil's own, quote, pride of life. Um, So we have free will, by our own cooperation with grace to choose to avoid the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And so also today, we're going to see that this passage from Isaiah is not something of unconditional election or limited atonement, but free will as all the Christians of the first thousand years of Christianity held it to be. This is why we can't just make up our own ideas like John Calvin in the 16th century, like double predestination. But before we get there, this question of free will versus double predestination, we have to ask the same thing the apostles did today to Jesus. Why do you speak to them in parables? Well, you have to remember, if you go back to past VLXs, Jesus had a small home in Capernaum. He had spoken clearly to many people there, worked many, many miracles. And some people believed, but many rejected him, including the Pharisees. And now, remember, Jesus pulls aside the apostles and he speaks clearly the doctrine that he's going to establish in the church very clearly to them uh, in private. But what does he have to do in public? In public, Christ speaks in code. Why in code? Because the Pharisees and others have proved themselves unworthy. It's not that they were conceived unworthy in this idea of double predestination. They chose to make themselves unworthy by rejecting not only the teaching, but all the miracles of Christ that he did in Capernaum. And now, of course, there's still a few people in the public listening audience who are going to be given the gift of faith to crack the code. And I'm purposely using that word code uh, because, again, Christ speaks clearly in private to the apostles, but he speaks in code in public because the Pharisees were not worthy of his teaching and or they were going to twist his words against him. So let's see what Father Lapide has to say about Matthew chapter 13. He starts with verse 11. Dewey Rhyme says, Who answered and said to them, Because to you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. And so Father Lapide says the reason why Christ spoke to the multitude in parables was... Because many among them were as yet incapable of receiving the heavenly doctrine of the gospel, or else they did not believe, even some ridiculed it. The scribes also reviled Christ and considered him a false prophet. Christ therefore tacitly urges them to put on ears that hear and carefully examine the things that he says in parables and humbly ask from him the meaning of them so as to obey them that thus they may make themselves fitted to receive the preaching of the gospel. If they would do this, he promises clearly to expound what he speaks in parables. So it's almost like he's saying, hey, you know, if you reject my appetizer, I'm not going to serve you the full meal. But if you prove yourselves worthy, you can come on in and eat. Um, Furthermore, Father Lapide says, Christ indicates that this capability of receiving the word cannot be obtained by our own power, but must be humbly asked of God. It is almost as if Father Lapide is putting these words in Christ's mouth, but again in a good way. Yours, O ye apostles, is this grace and happiness that God has given you faith in me, and that therefore I tell you plainly about his mysteries, whilst I speak to others only in parables. For faith is the gift of God. Therefore continually render thanks to God for this, and pray for others, that God would give them ears to hear as he has given you. 
That is, to the unbelievers who are outside of faith and of the church, all things are spoken and done by me parabolically, that is, obscurely, by symbols and enigmas, so that they may not despise and ridicule them or cavil at them. For as St. Bede says, not only the things which the Lord spoke, but also the things which he did were parables, that is, signs of mysteries. Father Lapide then quotes Matthew 7, 6, Give not that which is holy to dogs, neither cast ye pearls before swine. Father Lapide, last sentence here, he says, He means that they are blinded and obstinate, and that they persevere in their blindness and faithlessness, and will not accept the light of truth which I offer them, for this blindness is the punishment of past sins which they have committed. End quote. So notice right there, free will exists very clearly. They will not accept the gospel, and this blindness is due to past sins. It wasn't that they were wound up um, as, you know, this capricious Calvinist idea. They weren't wound up and set up for hell. They chose to reject Christ by their free will. They chose to reject even the miracles that they had seen. So if double predestination is an error, what does the Catholic Church actually teach about predestination? Well, there's entire books on it, but the real basics is this. The Catholic Church teaches that God still does create souls with foreknowledge of them going to heaven or hell. And yeah, that might sound a little bit dark to some people. But listen again to hear that there is free will involved. Again, the Catholic Church teaches that God still does create souls with his own foreknowledge of them choosing to go to heaven or hell. Why? Because everyone's given sufficient grace of salvation. And everyone has free will to choose grace or sin, heaven or hell, Christ or Satan. Now, again, Calvinism is different because they claim God already decided in a very capricious manner. And remember, capricious just means kind of willy-nilly with no reason about it at all. If you're going to heaven or hell, and then after that, it's essentially your job on earth to prove you were saved by your good works, but really you don't have any free will. And so what is proving you're saved by your actions really become at the practical level? I realize this isn't like written into tulip five-point Calvinism, but what does it become at the practical level? Ironically, it becomes earning your way to heaven in man's eyes. You have to look like you're a good Christian at all times, but you know you have to prove this to man. Um, you're earning your way to heaven, the very thing they accuse Catholics of. Okay, and by the way, this all ties into the eye of tulip, which is another false doctrine, and that is irresistible grace. We don't have time to tackle it, but essentially this is tied to the you and the out. God arbitrarily chooses at your conception, or maybe in his eternity, if you're going to heaven or hell, and remember, you don't have free will. This is double predestination. And really, it's a very scary view of God. You know, if this is true, if Calvinism is true, then God is not love and you don't have free will. But God is love and you do have free will. So now we're going to switch gears and see how the fathers interpreted Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 to 10. Again, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. You notice that? God is willing to heal them, but who closed their eyes? They have closed their eyes. It's right there in Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. Also, let's look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 12 and 13 today. We already heard this, but I'm going to read it one more time. Jesus says, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And this is what Father Lapide has to say about that. 
Behold how Christ here plainly declares the reasons, which I listed at verse 11, why he spoke to the Jews and Pharisees in parables. It was because they had been previously unwilling to hear, to understand, obey, and believe Christ when he spoke plainly of repentance and the way to the kingdom of heaven. And although they saw his sanctity and his miracles, they refused to acknowledge and worship him as the Messiah. For he taught at Capernaum, where there were rich merchants who rested on their riches, luxury, and ostentation. Others were scribes and Pharisees or their followers. These men despised, yea, even derided and blasphemed Christ's heavenly doctrine concerning contempt of riches, humility, poverty, and penance. Therefore, Christ purposely had recourse to parables, which, since they did not understand them, they could not deride or calumniate. Therefore, he spoke to them in parables, not because they were absolutely reprobate, but because they were unworthy, ungrateful, and unreceptive. For when he taught and preached simply and clearly, they had listened to him more for the sake of curiosity and calumny than in an effort to believe, end quote. You might have noticed the word that Father Lapide used there, reprobate. That's one of the terms Calvinists use for someone who's been wound up from their conception for hell. And you know, Father Lapide must have known a little bit about Calvin to even use that term right there because he says this wasn't the case. Why, why was Christ unwilling to speak clearly to them? Because already in the past in Capernaum, they proved themselves unworthy, ungrateful, and unreceptive. So he also quotes several of the saints, St. Saint Hilary, St. Saint John Chrysostom. He says, Nevertheless, I confess that there were intermingled with this multitude of unbelieving Jews many who had a good but confused desire of hearing Christ. Okay, so right here we're going to hear why Father Lapide says, I mean, because really the question could be, okay, well, why speak in code at all? If, if you're going to speak clearly in private to the apostles who believed you, but all of the people in public have already rejected you, why speak to them in code, in parables at all? Well, there are some people there who really haven't made their decision yet, maybe hearing for the first time. And this is why um, Christ has to speak in parables, one, to kind of, you know, not throw pearls to the swine of the Pharisees, but to those who've been given the gift of faith or, or open to faith, um, Father Lapide says, it was given to them to hear only in parables so that by them, even when they did not understand them, they might at least conceive admiration and reverence for Christ, which would at length lead them on to a better position. Indeed, as St. John Chrysostom says, to all the scribes and Pharisees, however unworthy and obstinate, Christ spoke in parables with this intention and this end in view that he might instill into them a sincere desire of examining their meaning, believing in Christ and being saved, and that having suffered a temporary blindness with regard to the parables which they did not comprehend, they might the more eagerly desire Christ, the true light, and ask of him the explanation of the parables. So right there, St. John Chrysostom hasn't even written off the Pharisees in all of this. Yeah, Christ has to speak in code so that they don't mock him too hardcore, but Jesus is still open to their salvation, which again disproves this ridiculous idea of double predestination, for St. John Chrysostom, one of the greatest Christians of the first 500 years, held that even the Pharisees could have been saved by these parables had they just latched on to the grace that was coming in their direction. And one more verse to look at before the imaginative way. In Matthew 13, 17, today Jesus says, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Father Lapide says, for as Christ said in John 8:56, Abraham rejoiced that he might see my day. He saw it and was glad. Here is the voice and prayer of Jacob. I will look for thy salvation, O Lord. Genesis 49:18. Then also Isaiah 45:8. Drop down dew, ye heavens from above, and let the clouds rain the just. 
let the earth be opened and bud forth a savior. There was the same intention and desire in all the patriarchs, all the prophets, all the saints of the Old Testament, namely to see and hear the Messiah, the Redeemer, teacher and savior of the world. It is said that St. Augustine had three wishes. The first, to see Christ walking in the flesh. The second, to behold Rome in the splendor of an imperial triumph. And the third, to hear Paul thundering forth at the pulpit. And you know, all of these were the past saints of the Old Testament looking forward to Christ. There's also this very mysterious line in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11:40, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That's speaking of those in the Old Testament. We'll probably have to see what Father Lapide has to say about that. But that line came to mind as I was uh, reading what Father Lapide had to say. We'll have to see how he interprets it. But again, St. Paul writes in Hebrews 11.40, speaking of the prophets and saints of the Old Testament, that apart from us, he's speaking of New Testament Christians, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So right there we have the past and the present fulfilled, not only in Christ, but everyone who would one day call themselves Christian and in fact be Christians themselves. And now for the imaginative way, I know this might not be too exciting, but you may want to get a pen and paper out because I do want to go over again the method of how St. Teresa of Avila gave to her nuns, just in case we kind of got off track a little bit over the past few months. I want to look again at the cataphatic way. This is knowledge of God obtained through affirmation, the way St. Teresa of Avila taught her nuns and St. Ignatius of Loyola taught his, his early Jesuits using memory and consideration. The number one book I suggest for this is Father Rohrbach, the old school Carmelite who wrote Conversation with Christ. And in that book, he just distills out the five or rather four steps that he claims St. Teresa of Avila taught the nuns. The first step is the selection and material, preparation of meditations included in that. And we already do that for you on this channel here. Number two is the consideration, and this is where you have to um, really use your imagination. All five senses, smell, sight, touch, you have to ask yourself, who is here in the scene? What is he doing? Why is he doing it? What does it mean to me? Part three is your conversation with Christ. Father Peter, that old school Carmelite I mentioned, he writes, the soul begins to talk slowly to Christ, telling him of its love for him its desire to serve him, its willingness to do anything for him. He adores Christ in the scene of the day's meditation. He expresses his love for him, thanks him for past gifts, petitions him for new favors in the future. And St. Teresa of Avila even adds, you can place yourself in the physical presence of Christ, talk with him, laugh with him, and confide in him. Instead of using formal prayers, extemporaneously express your interests. This will result in rapid progress. And number four of four is gratitude or resolution. Now, I realize we only do this series once a week, and I'm very grateful to people that keep up with us on all this, but what do you do the other six days of the week? I really, really think it's so important that you do 15 to 30 minutes of this. One option, many of the saints say the very best thing to meditate on is, of course, the passion of Jesus. Think of the five sorrowful mysteries or all the stations of the cross. Even picking one of those stations of the cross for your other six days when you're not following BLX is a very, very powerful way of meditation. 15 minutes on that, you might think it's going to be very dry, but it doesn't have to be. One thing that can really help you with this is, of course, the dolorous passion of our Lord Jesus Christ by Blessed Catherine Emmerich. That was the book upon which Mel Gibson based his movie, The Passion of the Christ. Now, I just gave you the four steps of the method of both St. Ignatius of Loyola and St. Teresa of Avila, but before step one, I might call this step zero. Step zero for us who are living in the 21st century is, remember these things, phone off, coffee out, 
up before the kids. I'll say those three again. Phone off, coffee out, up before the kids. Here's what I mean by that. The most important thing we have to remember before we get to step one, again, step zero, especially in 2021 or whenever you're listening to this, it's so important that you can eradicate all unnecessary distractions. Now, if the only time you can pray is noon when your kids are around, okay, well, that's necessary distractions, right? But this kind of leads to part two, or rather part three. It's great if you can get up and do this before the kids are up. And then um, step 0.2, I guess, is uh, coffee out. Now, I'm the first person to say you should never bring coffee or even a water bottle into adoration. I don't think anybody on this channel would even think about bringing water or coffee to mass, of course. Can you do your morning mental prayer with coffee? Yeah, I think if that's what's necessary to wake you up, you do it. I'm not for drinking coffee during the divine office. People in seminary would call it coffice, which is ridiculous. That's an extension of the mass. You don't bring your coffee to mass, and you don't bring your your coffee to whatever you people like to call it coffice for the new liturgy of the hours. Nobody doing the old divine office would I think would ever think of doing that. But for your mental prayer, and I'm open to correction on this, I think the three most important things to do is have the phone off, cough your tea if you need it, and then um, get up before the kids. And then finally, uh, find something you can meditate on since we're only doing this series once a week. Um, it's kind of turning into a patristic Bible study since it's only once a week, but I really think that the union with God will take off if you make sure to make those 15 minutes of meditation a day. Please say an Our Father for me, et benedictio de me potentis patris fidi, et spiritus sancti, descendit super vos, et maniat semper. Amen. <laughs>